In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen. Imagine the wonder of the world's first Christmas. The first Christmas pulls back the curtain. The first Christmas opens up for us a glorious glimpse into the heavenly. Of God interacting with his creation in magnificent and marvelous and miraculous ways. And it's all about Jesus. Angels come to Zechariah announcing that his wife will bear a son, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. The angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary that she will bear a son whose name will be Yeshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation, and he will be no ordinary child. In fact, Gabriel announces he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And if that weren't enough, Mary would still be a virgin. Joseph, likewise, receives welcome news from a heavenly messenger that the child Mary carries is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, the angel announces. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And as we just heard, angels also appear to shepherds who are keeping watch over their flock by night. And these unlikely witnesses hear good news of great joy that will be for all people. A savior born in Bethlehem, who is Christ the Lord. Speaking of Bethlehem and of the wonder of that first Christmas. What in the world would possess Joseph and a very pregnant Mary to travel 70 miles in probably four days? And maybe they had a donkey, but they probably didn't. They weren't very well off economically. What would possess them to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, a census brings Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to the city of David so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. God had spoken to the prophet Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Yes, at that first Christmas, we see the wonder of God's Salvation, his plan coming to fruition. But not everything at that first Christmas seems miraculous. When Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, they cannot find a sanitary, comfortable place for Mary to give birth to the Savior of the world. There is simply no room. Seems a little strange, doesn't it? How can this be? No room for God in the flesh? No room for the Savior of the world? No room for Jesus? No room for the one through whom all things were made? It seems scandalous. Not miraculous. Scandalous, not miraculous, that the Son of God would be received by his own creation in such a way. But the creation having no room 
for Jesus would be a reoccurring theme of Christ's entire life here on earth. And you guys know this full well, right? When Magi come seeking he who is born king of the Jews, they go to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the capital. That's where kings are at. They go to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, expecting that such a king would be born there. And in the process, they alert Herod to Jesus' arrival. But Herod doesn't see the birth of Jesus as a miracle at all. No, instead, it's a challenge. It is a threat to his kingship. There is no room for a second king. So you know what happens. Herod makes arrangements that all the boys two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem be slaughtered. And so Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. There simply is no room for another Messiah or for another king. There is no room for the baby king, the baby Messiah, or the baby Lord Jesus. After Herod dies, the family, as you know, moves to Nazareth, a small, inconsequential town. Can anything good come from there? Jesus grows up there. So when he begins his public ministry, surely he will be accepted and received well in his hometown, right? He'll be a hometown hero. But when Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah and proclaims himself as its fulfillment, there is no room for this good news. No room for Christ's words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Instead of lifting Jesus up on their shoulders, instead of having a parade to celebrate, the people take their hometown son, escort him to the top of a high hill, and plan to throw him off a cliff. There is simply no room in Nazareth for Jesus. So you can probably understand then why Jesus would take up residence in Capernaum up north. While living there, he crossed the Sea of Galilee from the western side to the eastern side and ends up in a in Gentile territory. And while he's there, cast demons into a herd of pigs, drowning them in the lake. Now, instead of marveling or welcoming the rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus, the people there beg, beg him to leave. No room for the Christ in Gentile territory. Later on, Jesus passes on through Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. And he sends messengers ahead to find a place to stay. But the people of Samaria make it very clear they don't want him there. There's no room for Jesus in Samaria. And Judea, that's the worst. Forget it. The religious elite didn't have enough room for the one who ate with sinners, tax collectors. They didn't have room for the one who healed on the Sabbath. They didn't have room for the one who cast out demons with authority and power, insisting that it was by Satan's power that Jesus did all these things. So there is no room in, for Jesus in Judea. But yet there is something wonderful. 
Jesus has more than enough room in his heart for all people. For sinners, for tax collectors, for Sadducees, for Sadducees, for Samaritans, for Gentiles. Jesus has even enough room in his heart for those who reject them. He has a heart especially for the lost. He mourns over those in Jerusalem who have no room for him. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, our Lord laments. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. That is from Luke chapter 13. And as we will discover later, our Lord even has enough room in his heart for those who scorn him, for those who mock him, and for those who crucify him. Praying directly to the Father, saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus has enough room in his heart for everyone. The demon-possessed, the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the lepers. Even for the dead. Because he even raised the dead. And when he does this, this is perhaps the last straw. After our Lord raises Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who had come with Mary from Bethany and seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And so, but some of them, they, went, they go to the Pharisees and they tell the Pharisees what had happened. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gather the council together and say, what are we going to do? This man performs many miraculous signs. If we let him go like this, go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Romans are going to come away and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So many in this world have no room for Jesus. There was an expectation on Palm Sunday as he enters the city of Jerusalem that he was the Davidic king. But as the week passes, uh, nothing much happens. And the Jews are still under Greco-Roman rule. And the crowds change their tune. Now, some say there are different crowds, maybe. But we've talked about how fickle the human heart is when things don't go our way, right? And so the crowds instead turn on Jesus. When given the opportunity to release a murderer, right? Barabbah, Barabbah, or the Christ, the crowd chooses very clearly Barabbas and demand that Jesus be crucified. There is no room for a king who does not meet my expectations, apparently. And Pilate, well, he wanted to release our Lord. He knew he wasn't guilty. Sent him over to Herod. Herod said, well, he's not guilty. I sent him back over to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't want it. I don't know what to do. But Pilate had no room for an insurrection. He had no room for the trouble that Jesus might cause. So he hands Jesus over to be crucified. He doesn't have any room for Jesus and the mess he's going to make. But Jesus has enough room in his heart that he willingly goes through with the Father's plan. And as much physical 
suffering. You think about the physical, right? We've talked about this before. The physical aspect, which in and of itself is, is, is torment and suffering. The greatest torment, the greatest anguish, comes as the Father removes his presence, pouring on his Son the sin of the whole world, along with the guilt and shame and punishment that comes with it. There is no room for the Father to remain in perfect relationship with the Son because he places on Jesus physical and spiritual death. Jesus dies both. But it wasn't because he had done anything wrong. It's because we sin daily much and do much against our God and against one another. We confessed it earlier tonight. And that is exactly why the Father sends His beloved Son, with whom He is well pleased, to accomplish what you and what I could not and would not. The Father has room in His heart for sinners too. And so He sends Jesus, so that the curtain could be peeled back, and you could see God's love for you incarnate. And of course we know Jesus' heart, has enough room to suffer in such a way for you and for me. We know that the nails didn't keep him in place. Love did. God has enough room in his heart that he sends you the Holy Spirit, that you would know God's love for you and believe it and receive it by faith, that you would be received into heavenly dwellings, right? For Jesus promised that this isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. He's doing something with a purpose. He's going to prepare a place for you and for me. He went to prepare a place for you and for me in the Father's house. There was no room for Jesus on that night in Bethlehem, but there's plenty of room in the Father's house for you. Right? Jesus says so. In the Father's mansion are many dwelling places. It's a place of permanence. That's what it means, dwelling place. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will go and then return and take you to be where I am also. More than enough room for you in God's heart. But do you have room for Jesus? We talked about how there was no room for Jesus at Christmas, that first Christmas. But in a stunning reversal, do we only have room for him at Christmas? Is it only sentimentality or tradition that opens the door to hearing about him once a year and then move on? The truth is that our Heavenly Father has given his son for you, not just at Christmas, but for each and every day. And our Lord Jesus has given his church and given you his word and sacraments through which he comes to us and abides with us and is Emmanuel, God with us to the end of the age. But do we have no room because our lives are too crowded? Do we fill our lives with so many other things that we have no room for his gifts, for his love or his presence, that we have no room for his call to repentance and faith? Do we grieve the Holy Spirit? And his power to conform us to the likeness of Christ. Do we resent that the Comforter has set us apart, giving us a heart of thanksgiving and praise and joy? Do we grieve his work so that, so that living our lives according to God's will 
is too much for us and it's just easier. We don't have room. We need to fit in the world's expectations. Do we see the wonder of God's working only in the first Christmas so that Christmas becomes just another story? Probably more than you and I would like to admit. You thought a manger was rude and crude, no place for the Son of God. That a feeding trough was rough. Try the human heart. Ruder, cruder than a manger and tougher and rougher than stone. Yet we sang it tonight. God imparts to human hearts the wonder of Christmas past, of our Lord's first coming for you and for me. God imparts to human hearts the wonders of Christmas present and our Lord's coming today, calling and empowering us to repentance and faith through his word and sacrament. God imparts to human hearts Christmas future, our Lord's return, when Christmas will be every day as the Lord dwells with us without remainder. The truth is, God still does miracles at Christmas. He still peels back so that we can gaze into the heavenly. And your faith is proof. He has opened your heart and your mind to receive Christ Jesus, born to die for you so that you could die to sin and live for him. God still does miracles at Christmas. He has opened your heart and your mind so that you have enough room for Christ. May he sustain you in that faith for the one who brings life and salvation to you and for you, the one who brings God's favor to you, and peace and joy and light and life. Amen. I may the peace which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.